Well, good morning. Good to see each of you. And welcome to Highlands. If you're a guest, great to have you with us. I got to meet some first-time guests, uh, family members of our members, and so great to have you with us. And for those of you joining, it is a delight to worship our God in spirit and in truth. Uh, Please take your Bibles and open to Exodus chapter 1. And this morning, we are going to look at three sketches, really, three biographical portraits of women who trusted God. Some of these we've looked at before, some for entire sermons. Um, Each of these women I've chosen this morning has something to do with deliverance, and it also has to do with the context of death. So you've got this very grim circumstances out of which you see women who trusted the Lord. I still remember bringing our first child home from the hospital, which was only about a 500-yard walk from the campus clinic to the men's dormitory where my wife and I lived for four years. Uh, so it was, it was Tony and me and Emily and about 300 university men all living in a block dorm in South Carolina. And we were already in the middle of a very busy spring university semester, and I was excited to be a dad, but I was already exhausted being a father, and that was just day two. I was overwhelmed by the uh, seeming incessant crying, the needs, the discomforts that she couldn't communicate clearly, and the comforts she unknowingly stole from our little apartment. I remember thinking two things, very godly thoughts, which you would expect. I remember thinking, why would anyone have more than one of these? (laughs) True thought. And second, I, I had a sense of gratitude for my own mother, realizing she had gone through this with my two older sisters and me, and somehow we all survived, uh, especially me. And so my heart just overflowed with thanksgiving for her. And so today, here we are so many years later, I'm now a grandfather to a very beautiful one-year-old granddaughter. And I'm thankful for my wife, the mother of my six children, and my daughter who has now entered that journey, and for all of you represented here as well. Mother's Day is and can be a day of complexities. There are memories and hopes, there's love and grief, joy and sadness, thankfulness and regret, contentment and concern, and the always present, burdened heart of a good mother for her children, whether it's a newborn or a not yet born or a 53-year-old son who can still cause problems, right? That's what mothers do. Anticipating Mother's Day with all its complexities, we are called to be a people who rejoice with those who rejoice and grieve with those who grieve. Today provides an opportunity to do both. So I want our hearts to dwell on these specific scriptures as we look at three different sketches. Proverbs 31.30, a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. There is no geographic class to that, no economic class to that, no racial distinction to that. It is something every single woman can do. A woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. 
And first Peter five, six to seven says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. First woman I want to highlight this morning for our encouragement, not just by way of a moral example, but how God had used her in the face of death to provide a deliverer. I want you to see the details in Jochebed's story of God's providential care in the face of death. Initially, the name Jochebed is not familiar to many of us, though her story is found in Exodus chapter 1 and 2. That's why I've had you turn there. She's not named in the entire account. But that doesn't mean that she's unimportant. You remember the woman who was a great sinner, and she went in to find Jesus in the Pharisees' home, And the Pharisee is named, and the woman is not, and yet the woman is remembered for her great worship. We learn her name, though, through a genealogy in Exodus 6 and Numbers 26. I'm going to read to you the verse in Numbers 26, verse 59. The name of Amram's wife was Jochebed, the daughter of Levi, who was born to Levi in Egypt. And she bore to Amram, Aaron, and Moses and Miriam, their sister. Moses' mother is Jochebed. She is the one living during the time when Pharaoh ordered that every son be thrown into the bottom of the Nile. If it's it's a son of the Hebrews, the handmaidens are supposed to take that child and sink him to the bottom of the Nile River. Exodus 1.22 makes very clear at the beginning of this story Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Again, both of those prospects are horrifying. The reason they would let the daughters live and the reason that they would kill the sons is both equally horrifying. The fear, and I want you to capture this, the fear is a real one. For Hebrew mothers, the brutality is not fiction. It is a very difficult circumstance these women face. It's the story of a mother who has great concern for her son, but who also sees God's gracious providence in her life. Providence is a great word. The doctrine of divine providence is a comforting doctrine. It basically states That God is in complete control of all things, whether it be people or dictators or natural, the natural order of things. God is active and near. It really is the outworking of Psalm 46, verse one, that says God is a very present help. He's our refuge and strength and a very present help in trouble. And we can immediately think about the trouble that Ukrainian mothers are going through right now and Russian mothers, the grief and the hurt that they are going through right now. And that is true, and we must take that into consideration. But there are the silent hurts in a modern city that is not at war as well. And do you know that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble as this story unfolds, you know, we, we had made reference to them in a sermon a couple of weeks ago. There are two other 
women who gain honorable mention. Look at Exodus chapter 1, verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, verse 16, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Again, the situation seems hopeless. Where is God in that mess? Verse 17. I'll show you where God shows up. He shows up in verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Look at verse 20. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. Verse 21, and because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Proverbs 31:30. a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Jochebed gives birth to a son. I'm sure she is not the only mother who tried to hide her son from the Egyptian soldiers or from those that were tasked with going about and killing these young boys. Look at Exodus chapter 2, verse 2. The woman conceived, again, unnamed but not unimportant. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. I don't know what your experience was as a parent with your firstborn, but hiding a child for three months, in our situation, that would have been improbable, right? Nothing's impossible, but improbable. Look at verse 3. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. Notice she doesn't just toss him into the Nile River, right? Sail away, sail away. No, she puts him carefully where he can be found. Verse 4, and his sister stood at a distance. Here she is, a little centurion watching over and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. The picture actually is stunning. North Africa, the world power of its day, the tropics along the Nile River. Yes, think crocodiles, hippos, creatures that lurk in the bulrushes. It seems Jochebed knowingly places her son where he will be safe, where he is watched over by the sister and where he will be quickly found. Again, where is God in all of this? Look at Exodus chapter 2, verse 5. In God's providence, in His control of all the details, even when they seem ugly and dark. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. While her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman. And she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister, whose sister? <laughs> who, who was guarding the baby? Okay, Moses' sister says to Pharaoh's daughter, Can you imagine that connection being made? Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. What a gentle providence. It's always encouraged to 
try to always rightly and favorably interpret God's providences to you even in dark situations. John Flavel, old Puritan who wrote The Mystery of Providence, he said this, Providence is wiser than you. And you may be confident it has suited all things better to your eternal good than you could do had you been left to your own option. Jochebed was allowed to keep her son, to nurse her son. And get this, now, look at verse 9. She's actually going to be paid for it. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman, which is who? Jochebed, took the child and nursed him. By the way, Jochebed is the first woman in Scripture to have a prefix added to her name, the prefix Jah, which is either Jah, which sometimes is Yah, or we get from it Jehovah or Yahweh. And literally, Jah-kebed means Yahweh is her glory. Look at verse 10. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water, even though they found him in the reeds. She calls him Moses. What an incredible providence from a woman who trusted God. See, I'm not sure what you as a woman, whether a mother or not, are facing this morning. But I do know this. You can trust that God is actively involved in your life. He is a refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Do you know the adult Moses did not always make wise decisions? He tried to deliver his people in his own strength. He killed an Egyptian and he, he ran away for a very long period of time. He became angry. He forfeited his right to go into the promised land. But God was still at work even in this young man. Hebrews 11.24 says this, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Not meaning that he had any ill will or spite towards her, but it was the identification with a people that was at stake. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ. Wait, we're only in Exodus. Jesus hasn't even been born yet. Yes, but he understood there was a promised Messiah coming, a true deliverer of which he would example. Moses, a type of deliverer. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. You know, God is still attentive the prayers of his people, and he is still setting mothers and their children apart for his work. Let's consider a second lady. Turn to Esther. Turn to the book of Esther. Only two books in your Bible named after women, Ruth and Esther. What is significant about the book of Esther, it's longer than Ruth, and yet the name of God is not mentioned anywhere within that book, yet his fingerprints are everywhere in his divine providence. Hadassah is the Hebrew name given to Esther. The setting is actually disturbing. I mean, there have been a lot of studies and books and seminars done on Esther, 
but it opens up with a scene where Vashti offends her husband, who happens to be the king who reigned from India all the way to Nubia or Ethiopia. He ruled the army of Persia and Media. He was an incredibly powerful man. Look at Exodus or Esther 2, verse 1. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Of course, she was banished from the kingdom. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom. Chapter one tells us there are one hundred and twenty seven provinces to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, which is present day Iran. Under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, let their cosmetics be given them and let the young women let let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king and he did so. That's the setting of Esther. Does that disturb you? (laughs) It's not a beautiful context. This isn't like this. Wonderful story of love that starts to transpire. You have you have an angry, hurting king, one of the most powerful men in the world, who's now going to seek out, according to his standards, the most beautiful woman in his kingdom. Add to this, Esther lost her parents at a young age. Esther grew up in Persia under her older cousin Mordecai, who was deported from Jerusalem and is now living in Susa, present-day Shush. Mordecai raised her as if she were his own daughter. Look at, es- look at Esther chapter 2, verse 7. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. Okay, pick up the reading a little later. When her, when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Look at verse 15. Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter. So you have this gracious providence amidst incredible loss and hurt. You know, some children are introduced to very deep grief and pain at a young age, earlier than we would like. Esther is now also a stranger in a strange land without any parents. 167 verses compose this book, yet no direct mention of God's name. Pause and just think about that for a second. Do you know you can have several years in your life where it seems as though God's not there? No direct mention. I don't know if if you're like me, we're we're, we're composed differently. We all image God, but we all are so different based upon our personalities and our experiences and everything else. Um, But but, but when I read the narratives, like even going back through the birth narratives of Matthew chapter one and Luke chapter two, and all these events are happening and, and an angel appears to Simeon and an angel appears to Mary and the angels appear to the shepherds and then the angel appears to Joseph. And I say, I'm just so thankful everybody else gets to see angels. No. Where's my angelic visitor to remind me, hey, press on. Well done. Keep going. Thank you. I only needed that once in a lifetime. Right. So I'm sitting there sort of I'm going to call it righteously jealous. Is that such a thing? Yes. 
righteously jealous of all these angel visitors when, when sometimes life feels more like the book of Esther. You pray and it seems like a one-sided conversation. C.S. Lewis says, sometimes when I pray, I feel like I'm addressing an envelope sent off to a destination that doesn't really exist. You ever feel like that? You ever feel like the book of Esther? Things are happening and, and there's no direct mention of God and yet a woman who trusts God understands He is at work all along. God is not silent. He's not passive. He's not distant. He's not indifferent. Esther is chosen to be part of this king's harem. She is actually then chosen to be the next wife of this pagan Persian king who banished his other wife because her actions dishonored him. But then a real drama is portrayed between Mordecai, Esther's cousin, and Haman. Do you remember Haman? Haman is sort of the main you know, antagonist of the book of Esther. Mordecai refuses to bow to him. Haman goes off on this violent ego trip. He's an official, court, an official in the court of the Persian Empire, and he starts to put a target on Mordecai's back. And you know how he does it? By creating a plan to exterminate all the Jewish people. Look at Esther 3, verse 13. This is how Haman determines to punish Mordecai. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces. Again, 127 provinces. A huge piece of real estate. With instruction to, I want you to look at this, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate. Like I think I got that in the first word, destroy. To kill and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. This book chronicles how aggressively foreign powers attempted to exterminate the Jewish people. Wouldn't be the only time in history. Yet God had already orchestrated, He had already graciously designed an individual to rise up into power in that kingdom to preserve his people, if you would, to borrow from Jochebed's life, to deliver his people. Just as Moses had delivered the people out of Egypt, here you have a woman, Esther, to deliver her people. It is very true that she had come, probably the most popular verse in the entire book, chapter 4, verse 14, that she had, quote, come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Look at, look at Esther's courage in heart. She decides to go into the king, her husband, unsummoned and risk death. Look at chapter 4, verse 16. Because, because other people's lives are at stake. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Chapter 8, verse 5. Esther rose and stood before the king. Courage and selflessness. What God is doing in this book silently is displaying His wisdom and power through Esther. Esther is imaging God's leadership, if you would. She valued the things of the Lord more than life 
itself. See, we, we get to read some of these incredible highlights of the life of Esther, and it could, leave, it could leave a young lady saying, oh, I wish I had a life like that, full of adventure, right? We, we watch maybe a, a film, Prince of Persia, and we want to have sort of that Persian experience. And uh, you, know what, you know what we forget? When her country was invaded, when her people were killed and mistreated and deported, when her parents died, and when she was presented as a simple object to the king, We forget sort of those dark valleys in the life of Esther, and yet she chose to trust God rather than give in to the bitterness of life's circumstances. Notice what happens. Just a a real quick flyover. Haman, it's a fascinating story if you've not read the book of Esther in a while. Uh, It can be read in one single setting. Haman is hung on the gallows he had constructed for Mordecai. Poetic justice. His ten sons were also hanged, according to Esther's request. The Jews destroy their enemies. Then Esther is granted what she wants. And then Esther 9 to 10 records the beginning of Purim, which is a new annual festival in the 12th month to celebrate the nation's survival, a feast that is still celebrated by the Jewish people today. You can see a reference to that feast of Purim uh, in, in remembrance of God's salvation in Esther 9:27 to 28. God used Esther in all the darkness and all the sordid details to accomplish his plan to deliver his people. A woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And she knew, Psalm 46:1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Jochebed, deliverance. Esther, preservation and deliverance. The final sketch I want us to look at this morning, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Mary, the mother of Jesus. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy... God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. That detail, highly important. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph. Very exciting times. A descendant of King David. Wow! But this, although an exciting time for Mary, look at verse 28. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Okay, that's a very encouraging message. Verse 29, though, look at her response. Confused and disturbed. You ever feel that way? At God's ways in your life? Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary. I love that. The angel knew the emotions that she would be grappling with. The angel told her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Verse 31, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. Great. She she might even be thinking that that would come through, through Joseph. Verse 32, he will be very great and will be called the son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor, David. 
Okay, now things are getting a lot more intense because now you have these Old Testament echoes coming out of Scripture about this particular child. Verse 33, and he will reign over Israel. Okay, that's a big change. Forever. Well, that could only be talking about one specific child that, that she had probably already learned of as a woman in the synagogue. Are you sure you're talking about my child? That's not in there. That was my paraphrase. Verse 34, Mary asked the angel, this, this is like the most important question during the press conference, but how can this happen? I am a virgin. Notice Mary's response to the disturbing announcement that her life was about to change forever. And what she does is she portraits a right response with a right attitude to God in a very difficult situation. Mary did not choose this. She was chosen. And in a culture that sort of validated and valued the wisdom of age, Joseph and Mary sort of stand out because of their youthful piety. Look at Mary's own words in Luke chapter 1, verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. The first verses are probably familiar to us. We even have a Christmas song here that we sing together with some of those words. Same for the next few lines. We rejoice that God chose a humble young lady, that God is mighty. He does great things. But then comes this. Look at verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. I read yesterday that there are countries in the past that have forbidden this song of Mary, Mary, you know, Mary's Magnificat, Latin for magnify. It is actually against the law to quote this publicly or to have in any kind of public liturgy because of the defiance that seems to come out in her prayer, in her song. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones. Look at verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Here's the point. The proud, the mighty, the rich could not design their own deliverance. God stepped in and he chose Mary. Poor, insignificant, underwhelming, unimpressive, unpopular. And it is a hint, by the way, of what Jesus' kingdom will look like. It's a hint of what people should value. You know, this section may not sound like good news if you are well-fed or rich or in a position of power and might or prosper from some kind of an oppressive system. Matter of fact, it could make that person feel insecure. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German pastor and theologian who was executed by the Nazis, called Mary's Magnificat, quote, the most passionate, the wildest, one might even say the most revolutionary hymn ever sung. Mary must have known that some of what she sang hadn't been fulfilled yet, but yet in her own heart there was the hope that through her Son, her Savior, these things would come to pass. The poor and oppressed have often identified with this song, which happens to be, by the way, the longest set of words spoken by a woman in the New Testament. And a poor, young, unmarried, pregnant woman at that. Matthew 1.18 says this, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when His mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. A woman woman becoming pregnant is not uncommon. However, if that woman had never known a man and is found to be with child, there is either some great explaining to do or some very strong accusations to endure for your entire life. How many people do you think in Mary and Joseph's village knew the real story? Very few. How many rumors do you think were being spread? Probably a lot. How many table talks and glances surrounding this seeming scandal? How many people saying, I just know. How many people were there to defend and to justify her? You know, probably what was likely, other than Jesus being crucified, what was probably likely the most difficult point in Mary's life, her betrothed Joseph decided to do what? To divorce her. Matthew one nineteen and her husband Joseph being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame. What else could he do? She's pregnant. That only ever happens one way. Resolved to divorce her quietly. So where is faith in all this? Listen to Mary's response in Luke 135 and 38. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. What would you say to that angel's announcement? See, maybe I don't want a visitor. Maybe I don't want an angelic visitor. Now I'm good today. Not today. Find another young lady, right? We can kind of humorously play that out. And Mary said, let's go back to this. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In what is the most difficult situation of her life up to this point, I'm yours, Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Life has its share of disappointments. Infertility rates are increasing. Waiting when you desire something is difficult. Miscarrying is a deep pain. Nurturing children is a blessing, but it's also challenging. For Mary, it was becoming pregnant without having been with a man. And she says, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Don't miss how God was at work to do what Mary couldn't do. Do you know what Mary couldn't do? Mary couldn't convince Joseph what he knew to be his truth, that she was unfaithful. Matthew one twenty. but as he, Joseph, considered these things, as he considered divorcing Mary, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, 
son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Again, a gracious providence of God to communicate to Joseph what she could never convince him to do. It really reinforces this truth. Psalm 46, verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Mary's difficulty continues. They've got to travel down to Bethlehem because of a secular decree. The hardship of that journey, some say it estimated a two-week journey. Then they had to go down to Egypt, not back home. And then finally, they get to go all the way back up to Nazareth. The difficulty didn't stop at the circumstances of birth or at travel. It's interesting that it was uh, Simeon, when they took Jesus to the temple, he arrives unannounced and he sees Joseph and Mary presenting Jesus. And Simeon says in Luke 2.35, he says to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And listen to what Simeon says to her specifically. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also. So that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. That sword thrust was probably the most excruciating when her son hanged on a cross. I just want to read that portion out of John 19. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister. And he goes on to list other women. By the way, where are the men? They fled. Jesus prophesied that when they strike the chief shepherd, they would run. Where are the women? Standing by the cross of Jesus. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, that's John, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. That cultural care and another glimpse of God's just soft, gentle providence that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Are you in a difficult circumstance this morning and do you fear for your child? You know what Jacobed's life reveals to us? God's providential care in the midst of distress in a situation that is out of your control. God is a very present help in trouble and out of that distress, God provides deliverer very much like Mary's life. Or perhaps you're not sure what God is doing in your life, and like Esther, you face disappointment and difficulty at a young age. And yet, Esther's life reveals a God who designs and places us in the middle of very difficult circumstances at the exact right time for a specific purpose and for His glory, because God is our refuge and strength of very present help in trouble. 1 Peter 5, 6-7 Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares 